and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. I'm Scott Miller, and I serve as your weekly host and interviewer. You know, for the, over, over a year now, we've been interviewing these amazing guests each week, some in person, some via our screen. Each week, though, we haven't had a disappointment. I mean, these best-selling authors, business titans, really wise researchers, scientists, people just kind of interested in the topic of how do you become a better leader? in your personal life, in your professional life, in every aspect. And today is no different. I am delighted to welcome to On Leadership one of my favorite authors, arguably one of my two favorite leadership books ever written. If you don't count any of Franklin Covey's works, we have the <laughs> best-selling author, Kim Scott, joining us, the author of Radical Candor. Kim, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much. It's a great honor. Always, always happy to be second favorite. Well, I didn't say second favorite. I'm like one of the top. Everyone knows that I just adore Liz Wiseman's work, a good friend of yours. Her book, yeah. Multipliers, really challenged and changed the way I looked at my leadership contribution. Your book, in many ways, validated the way I look at leadership and my contribution. You know, once in a lifetime, most people will read a book and they'll say, she wrote my book. And I kind of feel like you wrote my book because so much of what you are evangelizing and are passionate about has uh, been very validating to me in terms of things that I've learned, sometimes taken too far. But I'm so excited and anticipating a great discussion today. So again, I'm so grateful for your time. Well, thank you. You just made four long, lonely years of writing the book worthwhile. Well, I have to tell you, I'm not alone. Your book is a New York Times best-selling book. About two years ago, a friend and colleague of mine, James McDermott, who works here at Franklin Covey, been in the firm for 10 years, saw you speak at uh, the Qualtrics conference, yes. and he literally took a book and drove it to my home in Park City and said, Scott, you've got to read this book. You're going to love it. That was two years ago, and wow. I've read it twice since then. I've been asking you to be a guest. Finally, our schedule's matched up, so let's get started. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Kim, you've had a storied career. And I'd like to start there and have you take a couple of minutes and walk everyone who's watching, subscribing, listening. Talk a little bit about your time on this amazing career that you've had and how it was instructive to you writing this of several books, but this most recent book, Radical Candor. Sure. So my management career actually began in Moscow. That was the, that was the first time I was, found myself leading people. And it was really working with these, I was trying to hire these diamond cutters. And I thought it was gonna be easy because I was gonna pay them in dollars. They were being paid in rubles, which were worthless. And that was how you hired people, you paid them, right? And it turned out that they wanted more than just the money. They wanted to have a picnic. And so we went out into the woods and cooked some shashlik. And after about a whole bottle of vodka, I realized the thing they really wanted to know was if things went to hell in Russia, would I get them and their families out of the country? What management was all about, I realized, was really giving a damn about the people who you're working with. And so that was, that was the beginning of my management career. I went on to do a couple of failed startups, learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And, and then I joined Google and, and learned a lot of lessons the easy way uh, through success. And, and then I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to join Apple and watching the similarities and differences of the cultures at Google and Apple was incredibly instructive. So Kim, talk about those. You didn't just work at Google and just work at Apple. Remind our audience the roles 
that you had at both organizations? So at Google, I led online sales and operations for AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick. So the, it was really fun. It started out with AdSense, and then the cool thing about leading that part of the business was that you saw what was growing online. And, and so that, was, that led to the, the, the YouTube acquisition. And, and then when we acquired DoubleClick, I led a part of that team as well. So, so Google, I learned a ton uh, about, about the business. But of course, what got me out of bed at night was not cost per, or in the morning, <laughs> either at night or in the morning, <laughs> was not cost per click. It was really building the teams and, and the people side. And my favorite professor from business school left Harvard and joined Apple and said, why don't you come to Apple and help us build and teach this class managing an Apple? And so that was really a unique opportunity to go and, and have my day job be not, not managing a business, but really thinking about how to be a better boss, how to be a better manager, how to be a better leader. Kim, what were the main cultural differences between your experience at Google and Apple? It's funny. I think one of the best ways to explain the difference between the two cultures is to describe lunch at the two places. So when you went to Google, the lunch was free, it was organic, it was delicious, but it was kind of a smorgasbord. You had to put together your own lunch. You had to put it together the way you wanted it. Whereas at Apple, you had to pay for the lunch. It was also organic, delicious, but it was all composed for you. And so it was this very neat, organized lunch. Uh, and, and the, the, the bikes between the two companies were also sort of similar. At Google, there were, there were multicolored bikes and they were sort of scattered everywhere. And you grabbed one and pedaled off where you were going and you hoped it was there at the other end. At Apple, they were these very tasteful, sleek silver bikes with one red bell. And they were well organized, hung up neatly in these bike rooms. And you got a little lock with your bike, and you rode it, and you locked it, and you rode it back and put it where it belonged. Uh, so, so that's, in a nutshell, the difference between the two cultures. But at a management level, it was interesting. The two cultures were remarkably similar. They both really focused on caring at a personal level about the people who you worked with, on, on having real human relationships at work, and also being willing to challenge people very directly and sometimes very ferociously. I would say in, in radical candor parlance, they both were radically candid cultures. Maybe Google was radical candor with a twist of ruinous empathy, and Apple was radical candor with a twist of obnoxious aggression. So we'll get to those, because you've got some great stories about your experience with Tim Cook and Steve Jobs and Larry Page. Before, I want to talk about the book you've written. Now, you've written several novels, but mm -hmm. Radical Candor is described in the, in the sleeve as the sweet spot between managers who are obnoxiously aggressive on one side and ruinously empathetic on the other. It's about providing guidance, which involves a mix of praise as well as criticism. What led you to write this book? And if you had to give some key insights out of the book, what would they be? So I think if, if there's one moment in my career that led me to write the book, it happened when I had, I had hired this guy at a, at a startup. And I liked him. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. 
he would do things like he, he would, we, we were at one of those manager offsites where we're playing one of those endless get to know you games. And we're all kind of too stressed out to be playing the game. And he was the guy who had the courage to say, look, this is taking a long time. We're really stressed out, but I have an idea that'll help us get to know one another and it'll be really fast. If it was fast, we were down with it. So we said, what is it? Let's do it. And he said, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. <laughs> Weird, but fast. So we did it. And the, the, the weirdest thing, of course, was that everybody remembered. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, this guy, we'll call him Bob, Bob would pull out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So we liked Bob. He was quirky. He was fun to work with. He sort of added a little levity to the office. There was one problem with Bob, however. He was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. I learned later the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom four times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. But anyway, I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was doing terrible work, absolutely terrible work. And he would hand stuff in to me with shame in his eyes. And so I would sort of not know how to reply. Everybody who's ever been a manager has been in this situation where somebody is doing surprisingly terrible work. And so I would say something along the lines of, Bob, this is a great start. You're so smart. Everybody loves working with you. Maybe you could make it a little better. And then, of course, he didn't make it a little bit better. And all his colleagues were having to cover for him. And this goes on for 10 months, say. And let's, let's pause for a moment. Why did I respond that way? Part of it, part of the reason was that I really wanted to be nice to Bob. I, w I wanted to be kind. I wanted, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. But if I'm honest with myself, there was a sort of a more insidious thing going on as well, which was that everybody liked Bob. And we worked in one of those open tech office spaces. And I was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he would get upset. Maybe, God forbid, he would even start to cry. And then everybody would think I was a big you-know-what. So I was also a little bit worried about my reputation. So this goes on, and eventually the inevitable happens. Bob's colleagues are sick of having to cover for him, redo his work. And I realized that if I don't fire Bob, I'm going to lose all my best performers. So I sit down to have the conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to Bob exactly where things stood, sort of pushed his chair back from the table. And he looked me right in the eyes and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he says to me, why didn't anyone tell me? And now I realize that I have failed Bob in a bunch of different and really important ways. I failed to solicit feedback from Bob because I didn't know what I might be doing that was going to contribute to the problem, that was contributing to the problem. So maybe I was doing something that was driving Bob so crazy, he was forced to toke up in the bathroom four times a day. 
I don't know, and I never will, because I didn't ask him. I didn't solicit either praise or criticism from Bob. I didn't know what was going well from his perspective or what was going badly. I also failed to give Bob both praise and criticism. The kind of praise I gave him was really just a head fake, kind of an ego salve. And I failed to, to give Bob real criticism, to tell him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And probably worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was genuinely good about his work, and also when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all those different ways, he was now getting fired because of it. But it was too late to save Bob. At this point, even Bob agreed that he should go. There was too much water under the bridge to salvage his reputation with his team. And all I could do in the moment was make myself a really solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, and that I would do everything in my power to help other people avoid making that mistake. Because it was painful for me. It was worse, of course, for Bob. And it was terrible for the whole team. And yet, leading a team of 700 people when I was working at Google, I watched other people make this mistake over and over and over again. It was like a slow motion train wreck. So I really wanted to spend the time to give words to what happens to, to us as managers. When we're trying to be, usually we're good people, we're trying to do the right thing, we're trying to be nice, and then we wind up being not at all nice. It wasn't so nice at all in the end of Fireball. So, so that's really why I wrote the book and, and came up with the Radical Candor Framework, which I can tell you about. Does that make sense? It does. Kim, I can tell you, I've been hosting this program for over a year. We've had mm -hmm. close to 40 guests. I myself have been a formal leader for, gosh, 25 plus years. And I think you have just nailed the most important leadership competency of all leaders, which is it's incumbent upon you to talk straight, have high courage conversations, and ensure that everybody in your downline, your stewardship, your team, knows exactly where they stand. Because when you ambush someone with that type of feedback, if they're surprised, shame on you, right? It was your job yes. to summon the courage, diplomatic courage, to keep them aware of their blind spots and their performance. Yes, and yet we're told from the time where we learn to speak, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. And I think this is why, why in the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz says that feedback is the unnatural act, the, yeah. the unnatural atomic building block upon which all of leadership gets built. Because we're, we're so programmed not to do this. I feel like I've met my leadership muse in Kim Scott. <laughs> Kim, you share a great story early on about an, uh, an encounter you had. I think it was with maybe your boss and Larry yes. Page at Google. And it was kind of instructive to your understanding the necessity and the value, the pricelessness of letting the most senior person model this concept and how it changes a culture. Take your time and walk us through that story because I think it's so, there's such great leadership currency in that story. Yeah, so, so shortly after I joined Google, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room, and there is Sergey Brin, one of the founders, on an elliptical trainer in toe shoes in one corner of the room, pedaling away or stepping away. 
And in the other corner of the room is Eric Schmidt, who was uh, Google's CEO at the time. That's right. And it, he was so deep in his email, it was like his brain had been plugged into his machine. And like any normal person in this situation, I felt a little bit nervous. How in the world was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers had joined in the previous two weeks, Eric almost fell off his chair. He said, what did you say? This is incredible. What do you need? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need, do you need more engineers? How can we help you keep this business miracle going? So I'm feeling like, I'm feeling like the meeting's going okay. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And I walked out the door. I walked past my boss, who was Sheryl Sandberg. And I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back or something. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, oh gosh, I've screwed something up and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things that had gone well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sense of the word, the sort of kiss me, kick me, kiss me. Uh, I always get it wrong. Uh, but, but, but really seeming to mean what she was saying. But of course, all I, wanted, all I wanted to know was what I had done wrong. And eventually Cheryl said to me, you said I'm a lot in there, Are, were you aware of it? And I made this kind of brush off gesture with my hand. I said, yeah, no, it's a verbal tick. It's no big deal really. And then she said, I know this great speech coach. I bet that Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I sort of made this brush off gesture with my hand and I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all these new customers we have? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then Cheryl stopped. She looked me right in the eye and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand that I'm gonna have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um, every third word, it makes you sound stupid. <laughs> now she's got my full attention. And some people would say it was mean of Cheryl to say I sounded stupid, but in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at the moment because if she hadn't used just those words, then I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach and I wouldn't have realized she was not exaggerating. I literally said um, every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations for my entire career. In fact, I had I had raised money for two startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And this really got me to thinking, why had no one told me? It was almost as though I'd been walking through my entire career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and nobody had had the common courtesy to tell me it was there. I could get it out if I knew about it. Uh, and so, so I thought, what, what, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me, but also perhaps more interestingly, why had no one else told me? And I realized in the case of Cheryl, it boiled down to two things. She cared about me at a very human level, not just, not just as an employee, but as a human being. When I had a family member fall ill, she said, I'm gonna write your coverage plan. You go, to, you go to the airport, get on the airplane. We've got your back. That's what teams do for each other. And that was not the kind of thing, of course, she could do for all 5,000 people in her organization, but it was the kind of thing she could do for the people who worked directly with her. And, and that was really important because it sort of, it had a ripple effect. But Cheryl never let her concern for not hurting our feelings in the short term get in the way 
of her ability to challenge us directly, to tell us when we screwed up. And so it seems really simple, care personally, challenge directly. And I spent one summer at McKinsey, the consulting firm. And in that summer, I learned, it was the summer between my two years at business school, I learned one really important thing. All of life's hardest problems can be boiled down to a good two by two framework. So if you turn care personally and challenge directly into a two by two, when you care personally and challenge directly at the same time, it's radical candor. When you challenge directly, but you fail to show that you care personally, I call it obnoxious aggression. And I used to call that, by the way, the asshole quadrant, but I, I, I stopped doing that and I stopped doing it for a very important reason. As soon as I did that, people would use the framework to sort of judge others and mm. judge themselves. They'd start writing names in boxes. And I beg of you, please don't do that. The, the point of this, of this framework is to use it like a compass, not like a personality test. It's not another Myers-Briggs score. Uh, to use it like a compass to guide individual conversations to a better place. So, so that's obnoxious aggression. Now, very often when we realize we've, we've been kind of a jerk, instead of moving the right way on the care personally dimension, we move the wrong way on challenge directly and we wind up in manipulative insincerity, the worst place of all, where you're neither caring nor challenging. That's the false apology, backstabbing behavior, that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and those are the kinds of things we love to talk about. We love to talk about our obnoxious aggression stories and our manipulative insincerity stories, what, when people have done that to us at work. But the fact of the matter is the vast majority of people make the vast majority of their mistakes in this last quadrant where they do show they care personally, but they fail to challenge directly, usually just because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And this last quadrant I call Ruinous empathy, ruinous empathy. And that is the thing that the book is really directed at solving because it is the most common problem. Kim, take us back to Google before we go to Tim Cook. I want you to share the story about Matt Cutts and Larry Page in their yes. office and how Larry had set this, I think a, a really a culture for not just giving feedback, but wanting feedback and modeling that. Will you share that story? Yeah, one of my favorite experiences, one of my biggest learning moments at Google came when I, I was, Matt Cutts and I, Matt was, was in charge of, of keeping, the, uh, keeping the search index clean. And, and the AdSense business was, was maybe generating some clutter sites. So Matt and I were going in to talk to Larry and ha having a big argument with him about some AdSense policies, major argument. And, Matt presented his point of view and Larry presented his point of view and Matt presented his and Matt was getting more and more and more sort of agitated and, and, and angry really and, and actually started yelling at Larry. And I was getting more and more worried about Matt because he was this new colleague, I really liked him, I was afraid maybe he was gonna get fired. And then I looked at Larry and he had this big grin on his face. And the more agitated, the more angry, the more loud Matt was getting, the happier Larry seemed to be. And it was really, it was really a lesson in how a leader can encourage people to push back and to push back hard and, and, and to really encourage a culture of respectful, 
but intense debate. You know, your story about Sheryl Sandberg, I think, is so inspiring and easy to replicate because every one of us needs someone to tell us about our ums and our uhs or whatever yes. it is. And I can look back and remember the person who had that same radical candor in my life. I think it's a great call to action to all of our listeners to not just identify who is the Cheryl in your life, but who are you going to be the Cheryl in others' lives as well? For, uh, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. When, I, when we do workshops with, with teams who are trying to adopt radical candor, I really get people to tell the, the story in their lives, because everybody has one, about that moment when somebody told them something that was a little hard to hear in the moment, but stood them in good stead for the next 10, 15, 20 years in their career. And it's funny how these turning points can often be relatively small moments. Radical candor can, the, some of the best examples of radical candor in my career happened in two minutes or less, but had a huge impact. And, and I think being aware of those moments in your own life is what can get you over the hump of being reluctant to give other people the same, the same kind of gift of radical candor when you see it. Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to lose track of your desire to be kind. That's an important desire. But if you, if you realize that it is a kindness to point this out, even though there may be some short-term discomfort, then it can be much easier to do it. Kim, your experience might be different than mine, but I've found in my 30 years, you know, in the working world that when you think about leaders, they tend to gravitate towards one end of the continuum, right? Sort of ruinously empathetic or, you yeah. know, just destructive in terms of their courage. Yeah. Maybe yours is, yours is different. What, what, what tips, advice would you give all of us to kind of move towards this radical candor competency? Are there some common pitfalls that both ends of the spectrum fall into? What are some maybe baby steps into the shallow end that everybody can kind of move towards as they're reading your book, which you should be doing, by the way, but uh, give <laughs> us some practical advice. So I think one of the most important things to do is to be aware that there's, there's, there is a definite order of operations to moving towards radical candor. So step number one is soliciting feedback. Don't dish it out before you prove that you can take it. And before I go through the next steps, let's just take a minute, because if people do only one thing as a result of listening, uh, and it, it should be this thing, figure out what is the way you're going to ask others for feedback, and then ask somebody. In the next 24 hours, there's no reason to wait. And so here's a couple of tips on your feedback question. It needs to be the kind of question that you, the other person can't answer with a yes or a no. If you say, do you have any feedback for me? You're wasting your breath, because I can already tell you what the answer is. Oh, no, everything's fine. Nobody really wants to give you feedback. So you need to make sure that you ask in a way that really pulls information out of people. So, so one question that I like is, tell me what I could do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me. But if you use that question, you're, the other person's going to say, you just listen to some podcaster. <laughs> it, won't feel, it won't feel authentic. I was working with Krista Quarles, who's the CEO of OpenTable until recently. And she said, I could never imagine myself asking that question. The question I like to ask is, tell me why I'm smoking crack. So there's a lot of different ways to ask yeah. the, same, the same question. Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, 
told me that the, the way he, and he was very well known for getting people to tell him the truth. Uh, he said, snow melts at the periphery, and so you've got to learn what's really happening. So he said he would wait to the end of his one-on-one -on -one meetings, let the other person get through their agenda first. And then he would say, there's one more thing. And he explained to me that this phrase, there's one more thing, was code for this is the most important thing at Intel. I was working at Apple at the time, and Steve Jobs, of course, always introduced the new iPhone or whatever with, there's one more thing. And I made the mistake of asking Andy. I said, did you steal that from Steve Jobs? And he said, no, we both got it from Columbo, the detective show. So, <laughs> so you can get your go-to question from a lot of different places. But the point is, you need to ask the question in a way that really demands an answer, that feels authentic, like you, and that shows you really want to know the answer. And so now you've asked the question, your next step when soliciting feedback is to embrace the discomfort. It's very tempting to feel like if you just make people feel comfortable enough, then they will tell you the truth. But the fact of the matter is they won't tell you the truth uh, until they're, they're uncomfortable, which is why you've got to embrace the discomfort. So simple technique there is to close your mouth and count to six. I only made it to three, and I bet you were squirming in your seats. Because <laughs> almost nobody can endure six seconds of silence. And yet, very often when you ask somebody for feedback, they're uncomfortable. And the instinct is to make them more comfortable by letting them off the hook and answering your own question. And then you've just made them uncomfortable and wasted your breath. So embrace the discomfort. So now you have dragged somebody out on a conversational limb they never wanted to go on. The third thing you need to do to solicit feedback is to make sure that you are listening with the intent to understand, not to respond. Because you've just asked somebody to take a risk. You've just insisted that someone take a risk. And the worst thing in the world you can do is get defensive and punish them for, for taking the risk. So you need to manage. It's, it's normal to feel defensive. Don't, you don't need to feel bad about it if you do feel defensive. But you need to make sure that, that you check for understanding after you, after you ask. For. So just say, just to make sure I understand, I'm going to repeat back what I think you said. Sometimes you'll totally, you'll totally misunderstand the feedback. For example, my daughter at breakfast recently said to me, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady, mom. And I immediately assumed that what she meant by that statement was, she, it was not exactly solicited feedback, but you know, from your kids, sometimes you get unsolicited <laughs> feedback. And so I immediately assumed what she meant by that was, I'm spending too much time at work. I, she wants more time with me. And this sort of wave of parental guilt washed over me. But I thought, you know, I need to check for understanding. And so I said to her, well, who do you wish I were? And she looked back at me and she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. So now <laughs> I know that she meant something entirely. So you need to make sure you understand what the person is saying, because uh, often you'll interpret it entirely wrong. So that, that's step number three, is listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. Step number four is to reward the candor. Since somebody just took this risk to give it to you, it's not enough just not to punish them. You actually need to reward them for it. Risk, if it's going to be continued, uh, needs to be rewarded. So 
If you agree with the feedback, it's pretty easy. You fix the problem. Don't just say thank you for the feedback, but you've got to actually fix the problem. But if you disagree with the feedback, at the very least, find the five or 10% and whatever they said that you can agree with to demonstrate that you're open and not defensive. And then offer maybe the next in the next day or two a, a more thoughtful, detailed explanation of why you disagree with the feedback. Because very often, people, if, you, if all you do is say thank you for the feedback and you don't explain why you disagree, then people feel ignored. They feel invisible. And disagreement can be hard on a relationship, but it can actually deepen the relationship. But ignoring somebody, making them feel invisible is always destructive to a relationship. So that's a long-winded way of answering your question. But the most tactical, most important thing you can do is start by soliciting feedback. That might be the single best six minutes of wisdom we've had in the entire series. I think it was phenomenal. Uh, our time's almost up, but I want to get to a couple more points. I, I'd like you to share the Tim Cook story at Apple because I think it kind of makes me uncomfortable. One of my biggest um, uh, struggles is interrupting and being comfortable with silence. I'm a big fan of Dr. Deborah Tannen, the famed yes. linguistic professor, and she talks about that comfortability with silence. Share with us the Tim Cook uh, meeting. So when I, was, when I was interviewing to get the job at, at Apple, a, a colleague of mine warned me that Tim is a person who's very comfortable with silence and that I needed to go into the conversation being prepared to let a silence sit. But I'm not terribly uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not terribly comfortable with silence. In fact, the, the um problem I realized was that I'm so uncomfortable with silence that I say um, I try to fill it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I walk into this interview with, with Tim, and sure enough, he, he asked me a question, and he falls silent. And I go walking down this conversational limb that I never should have gone on. In fact, I, there was an earthquake <laughs> and in the middle of my story, thank goodness, because if there hadn't been, I might never have gotten the job, because I was starting to confess to every stupid thing I had ever done in my <laughs> career. So, so I, I, and one of the things I learned about being a leader at Apple is that it's so important to understand the difference between being a quiet listener and a loud listener. And Tim is very much a quiet listener, but that's not the only style of being a listener. I think Steve Jobs was very much a loud listener and both, both styles, both styles can work. You just have to adjust depending on who you're, who you're working with. Kim, I can invite you back because your book, Radical Candor, isn't just about you know um, being forthright and asking for feedback. It's actually a really holistic leadership book. There's a whole chapter on different types of meetings and the value of one-on-one -on -one conversations, staff meetings, think time, big yes. debate meetings versus big decision meetings, and all hands-on meetings. I think that chapter alone could be a book about how leaders can make better use of their time and decision-making. Just take a moment, if you will, talk about big debate versus big decisions meetings, would you? Yes, absolutely. Thank you. I'm glad you read the, because the, there's really three parts of the book. Mm -hmm. There's the part on feedback, there's the part on building a team, and there's the third part on getting stuff done. And yeah. nobody asked me enough questions about getting stuff done. So one of the things that I have found throughout my career is that 
a big source of tension on teams, especially when they're making important decisions or talking about important topics, is everybody will come together to a meeting and half the room will think they're there to make a decision and the other half of the room will think they're there to have a debate. And pretty soon the debaters and the deciders hate each other. And the deciders think the debaters are just wasting everybody's time. And the debaters think the, de the deciders want to make a decision in the absence of thinking it through carefully. So one of the things that I did that really helped more than anything else I did on, on a team, uh, any team of more than about 30, 40 people, is to have a weekly big decisions meeting and a weekly big debate meeting. And to keep the two meetings separate, or at the very least, if you only want one meeting, because I hate meetings as much as you do, you can combine them, but you need to make it crystal clear to everybody whether the topic is a debate topic or a decide topic. And, and if you do that on a regular basis, the other thing that, that it will do is it'll push decisions into the facts. And it'll pull the, the, all the relevant parties uh, into the conversation, into the debate. Because one, one thing I found early in my career was that I'd have a staff meeting and, and pretty soon all the decisions were getting made in the staff meeting, but the people who had the most information were not in the staff meeting. And of course, naturally we started making bad decisions. And so then everybody wanted to be in the meeting and it, it got too big and everybody who was in it felt like it was a giant waste of time and everybody who was not in it felt sad and bad and left out. And it was a great source of tension and stress on the, on the team. And so being really disciplined about not making decisions in staff meeting, because probably the people with the most information are not in the staff meeting, and pushing those out to, to a big decision meeting that is public. Anybody can go. The topic is published. And at first, the big decision meetings, big debate meetings would be too big. But pretty soon, people were like, oh, I don't really need to be there because the people who need to be there are there and the notes will get published. So, so it was a great way of helping people, helping identify who the debaters needed to be and who the decider was and by when the decision needed to get made. Pushing Kim, our, our time is ending, but, I, but the book is so valuable. One of the lessons that I've learned from our chairman and CEO, Bob Whitman, is that thinking is a legitimate business activity, right? He yes. likes to close the door and not waste time, but to dive deep in a topic, two, three hours on a topic. And you talk about think time as sort of number three here. Uh, take a minute and riff on think time. So one of the things that has been most frustrating to me, especially early in my, in my career as a leader is, is that I would have no time to think all day long. Every single minute was scheduled. And, and the only time I had to think was at 2 a.m. when I woke up. And I really, should, there's a rabbinical saying, don't make decisions in the dark. That was not a good time to think. <laughs> and so I became, I became pretty rigorous about scheduling as much think time as I possibly could and then really sticking to it. So at least one hour per day, ideally two hours per day where I could really go deep on a topic and think it through, write it through, uh, was, was really important to making better decisions, but it was also really important to, to my sanity, to, to not struggling with insomnia, to not waking up at 2 a.m. Kim, I think that in the fast-paced world everybody is in, 
this think time is so undervalued and sometimes um, uh, you know, kind of squeezed out of our lives. So I'm glad you yeah. illuminated it here. Tell me, in addition to all your speaking and writing and your consulting and teaching, what's next for you? What are you working on? What can all of our viewers and your readers and followers expect next from you? So I'm working on a new book, which I'm really excited about. I think it's going to be called Radical Courage, Confronting Gender Injustice at Work. And I really started, I really started writing this book because when I would go off or my colleagues would go off and do a radical candor workshop or do a talk, a question came up almost every single time, which was the topic on which we most need radical candor and are probably least likely to get it or to give it is around gender and diversity. And so I really tried to think as clearly as possible about why that is and the different ways that we can challenge different gender and diversity uh, topics that arise in the workplace. Well, if I invite you back on, will you come back on for Radical Courage? I would love to come back on. We, we, I'll find Thank some space you. for you on the wall. Kim, I don't know a lot, but I know a thing or two about books. This is a top three or four leadership book in the last century, literally. Uh, but I've been here a half century, so I, can, I have half, you know, half you a, um, a competence there. Radical Candor, I think it's a phenomenal book. Every leader should be reading, whether you're in a relationship, professionally, personally. It's an absolute gem. Kim, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us with Kim Scott today. Pick up a copy of Radical Candor, and we'll see you back here next week on Leadership for another insightful conversation with our next guest. Thanks for joining us.